Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 25. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at the documentarylife.com slash academy. If this is your first time listening to TDL, I'd strongly encourage you to go back and listen to any number of our prior 24 shows. Topics such as the importance of building a grassroots campaign for your film, how to ensure that you finish your documentary film project, and how to make documentary film overseas are just a few of the types of topics that are discussed. Film fundraising author Maury Warshawski, award-winning doc filmmaker Justin Shine, and founder-curator of well-known documentary filmmaking online resource DesktopDocumentaries.com, Faith Fuller, are just a few of the documentary industry guests that we've had on the show over the past year. If you're one of the TDL faithful, also known as hashtag DocLifers or DocLifers, I want to personally thank you again for tuning into the podcast and for the various emails that I've received over the past year, many of which I've read here on the show. Without you, this kind of show exists only in my imagination. Not that imagination isn't important. It does, after all, often drive our creativity, but you get my drift. As I mentioned, this is our 25th episode. That must be some kind of milestone, yes? In age, it's nearly three decades of one's life, a quarter of a century, if you will. Incidentally, the show itself is a month away from being a year old. 25 shows in 11 months. I realize that many podcasts are produced on a weekly basis, and we'll get there soon enough, but right now we're still twice a month, and I'm proud to have 25 shows under my belt. To be honest, it actually feels like I've been doing it a lot longer than a year and that I've recorded well over 25 shows. If we're looking to feel bigger by numbers, we can look no further than the fact that we just hit the 10,000 download mark this past week. You heard that correctly. The documentary life has been downloaded 10,000 times in just 11 months. Now that's more like it, right? Hells yeah. In fact, I'm going to play some freaking Cambodian rock and roll for a minute just to celebrate this. I mean, why the hell not? Be right back. Okay, thank you for allowing me that moment of self-indulgence. 
I can't get enough of that stuff. In fact, that, that song was by the legendary Cambodian artist Sinsi Samut, who was killed during the Cambodian genocide in the 70s. Many of you are aware that my wife Steph and I are currently in progress on our documentary film entitled Elvis of Cambodia, which is about singer Sin and the importance of his work to many Cambodian refugees worldwide. We were recently, in fact, putting in some work on the film, and, and we're actually trying to put together a trip towards the end of the year to Cambodia to finish out filming. Anyway, let's move along with the show, shall we? Speaking of emails, back in episode 23, I discussed an email from a young filmmaker based in Costa Rica. Her name is Sofia. She had written informing me about an important doc project that she and fellow students were working on that involved two women who had managed to get married although homosexual marriage is still quite illegal in Costa Rica. Sophia was asking for some guidance about an issue that she had come up against. You see, the director of the film had, had apparently slowed down on the project for whatever the reason, and Sophia, who happens to be the producer of the film, as well as a number of her colleagues, were feeling an urgency to keep working on the film. Not only was it affecting the overall dynamic of the group, but ultimately it was hindering progress on the film itself. So Sophia was, had reached out to me and was asking what I felt you know, her rights were in regards to either you know, pressuring the director to continue working on the film or maybe taking over the film herself. I won't detail the email or go too deeply into my recommendations. You know, Feel free to go back and listen to episode 23 if you haven't already. However, to remind some of you, though I went a little bit into the complexity and delicate nature of the situation, I did stress the importance of first having a sit-down conversation, producer to director, about the film project. And really letting the director know that, that the team was eager and excited to continue working on the film, which had become also important to a number of people, including the very subjects of the film itself. Well, I did receive an email response back from Sophia recently, who after hearing the show went and took some positive and affirmative action. So I wanted to update you. This is what Sophia recently wrote me. Hey Chris, I wanted to thank you so very much for taking the time to read my question and giving your intake on the situation. The whole crew met up today with the protagonists after having a talk by ourselves, and we're ready to continue the documentary and make an amazing job. We really hope we manage to make a good documentary so that we can show the reality of homophobia and the lack of rights in so many Central American countries. And who knows, if we're lucky enough, maybe my next question will be how to internationalize my short documentary film. Thank you again, Sophia. Now that sounds like a pretty positive response to a delicate situation. I can only assume from the tone of this letter that the director also is back and fully on board with the film project. Great work, producer Sophia. Please keep us up to date on the film as it progresses. If you're anything like me, you appreciate a good checklist. I've got all kinds of checklists in my life. Every night, I'm creating my to-do list for the next day. Whenever we go camping, I have a camping checklist. Whenever I go out on a shoot, I have a checklist with all of the gear, shots, and b-roll that I'll need. So one day, I thought to myself, why not some kind of checklist for doc filmmakers? And so I came up with one. It's called the Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, and it's completely free to any doc filmmaker who wants to learn the essential aspects of making a documentary film in the modern day industry. I am all about empowering documentary filmmakers, and this course does just that. 
it is my sincere hope that this free course will help make your doc film's journey truly the exhilarating and rewarding experience that it can and should be. Enroll today for free by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. One of the integral parts of any documentary filmmaker's canon is his or her ability to conduct an interview. After all, it's the interview that is one of the critical components to nearly any documentary film. That being said, it's always amazing to me how lightly documentary filmmakers, maybe more specifically first-time doc filmmakers, take the interview, or at the very least, how unpracticed they are. It's as if they think that they can simply walk on the well-lit set, you know, all crew members and the interviewee pleasantly awaiting the director's arrival, and they'll be able to sit down and conduct the most masterful of interviews. Reminds me of people who think that all that you have to do to run a successful crowdfunding campaign is, you know, put up a quick Kickstarter page and voila, the world will come to you with money hand over fists, because naturally that they've just been waiting for the likes of your creative genius. Thankfully, when it comes to interviewing people, you know, filmmakers tend to be more nervous or slightly inexperienced than arrogant, and this is completely understandable. The truth is that very few journalists or documentary filmmakers are completely unflappable in the face of any situation or interviewee. We can't all be Werner Herzog's or Alex Skibney's, but it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can do to give us the best chance for success with the interview. Zillions have gone before us, and therefore there are you know, paved roads that we can all do well to follow. Through the years, I have adopted some of my favorite filmmakers' interview tips and techniques and have fashioned this sort of best of list that, that I would like to impart to you today. A number of these are no doubt probably already being practiced by you, but I'll bet that there are at least a few of these that you might be able to adopt yourself that you maybe hadn't prior. So with that, I'd like to give you 10 hot tips for conducting interviews for your documentary film. Number one, no yes or no questions. This is like interviewing 101. I mean, everyone knows about this rule, right? Well, that's what I'd always thought as well. But I can't tell you how many shoots that I've been a part of, whether as a PA or as a DP, where before you know it, you know, you're 10 minutes into the interview and the director's asked about 10 questions and gotten either the most stale of responses or simply gotten back yes or no answers. And the director is just kind of sitting there uncomfortably, unsure of where it all went wrong. If I'm DPing, depending on how well I get on with the director, I, I might gently take his last question and, and rephrase it in a way that encourages the subject to give a more thoughtful answer. Or I might quietly whisper to the director to try asking questions that can't easily be answered with yes or no. It's not like you can't understand how this happens, right? Though be Asking a yes or no question, is, is it's an everyday part of daily conversations. But of course, if you ever want to be able to cut your film properly and have anything of substance being said, you've got to probe for better answers. Now, an easy way to do this is, is every time you find yourself having a yes or no moment, stop and rephrase the question with the how, what, or a why. I'll give you an example. If you were interviewing, say, a government administrator about their particular policy about, well, let's just say, let's say gay rights in honor of our fellow doc lifer, Sophia, and her current doc project, and say that the policy was one of, of not awarding marriage certificates to same-sex couples. You wouldn't ask this government administrator if they stood behind the law prohibiting gay marriage in the city, especially if you knew that they, in fact, were in favor of the law. They simply say, yes, they do, right? 
Instead, if you wanted to get a more in-depth answer and perhaps a conversation going, you might rephrase this question to be something like, why is it that you stand behind this particular government policy of not allowing for gay marriages in the city? What happens here is that you've basically made it impossible for them to not only have to give a yes or no answer, right, but they practically have no choice but to think about and then supply you with a more thoughtful response. You are there to elicit responses that are engaging. So remember, stay away from yes or no questions. Number two, include the question in your answer. Along these same lines is having your subject include your question in their answer. Why is this important? Well, if you've made this mistake in one interview and then gone and tried editing that footage, you'd make sure to never make that same mistake again. Because what, what ends up happening is that you have answers to questions but there's no context for those answers, right? So when you sit down to edit your film, it makes it very difficult to fashion sound bites from this interview because it all sounds like incomplete thoughts. To go back to our governmental you know, administrator, if, if say you've asked him what the name of the particular law is prohibiting same-sex marriage, and he merely says the name of the law as if he's just quickly answering your question, well, you'll never have the, you know, the name of the law that prohibits same-sex marriage in Costa Rica is blah, blah, blah. You might just have him saying the blah, blah, blah part. Does that make sense? It's important to remember that this is often how people have conversations, right? Someone asks them the question and they give the shortest answer possible. You almost never include the question in an answer. Totally get that. That would be awkward in a conversation. That being said, so as to make sure you have an, an interview that's edit worthy and it provides context for your viewer, it's important to recognize when the subject is giving these types of responses. And then really it's quite easily correctable. Usually something like the following is all that it takes. When you find the subject is answering in this fashion, simply politely interrupt the answer, or you can wait until they've finished the answer and then ask if they wouldn't mind repeating their answer, only this time including your question in the answer. And you can even briefly give them an example of how that might sound and or how that works. Usually once you've done this, the subject quickly picks up the best way in which they can be answering your questions really for the remainder of the interview. Number three is allow for breathing room. This is something that early on, and even sometimes still today, I have to remind myself to do, is to allow for breathing room within the conversation, within the interview. In essence, don't just go rip through the questions, right? Let the conversation unfold at an easy pace, allowing for the subject to relax and find their way into the answers. I often found myself worrying for my subject a little bit too much, you know, that I was, you know, maybe taking too long with the questions or that their answers weren't sufficient enough. And, and I was often compensating for this by going through the interview quickly or trying to make them feel easier about the interview. Right. But what ends up happening is that you can end up with a fairly stilted interview or you might risk losing spontaneous answers, which can be the best, the best parts of sound bites. I think that often you'll find that some of the best moments in interviews happen during the quiet moments in between questions. The idea here is to allow your interviewee to have a moment for their thoughts, right? And then to answer. If you're quickly responding to one of their answers or simply moving on to the next question, you're almost letting them off the hook. You're in, in essence, encouraging them, encouraging them to be brief with their answers. Sure. No one wants to weed through hours of a long winded conversation, but you also don't want to sell the interview or interviewee for that matter short. 
Remember, the idea here is to be encouraging, thoughtful, and thorough answers. You want to go home feeling that you've got more and not less than what you need. Number four is keep the pre-interview talk to a minimum. Keep the pre-interview talk to a minimum. Oh, have I made this mistake before? And it can be a painful one. You've had a lovely deep discussion, right? That covers precisely the ground that you want to cover for your interview. Maybe, maybe say 30 minutes of just tremendous conversation that you can't wait to get on film. So you sit down to conduct the interview and suddenly things don't come out as fluidly. Maybe your subject is camera shy. Maybe they're tired from having already talked for the better part of an hour with you. Or maybe, unlike the pre-conversation, the interview just came off in too, too formal a fashion. So you end up again with these stilted types of conversations. There's nothing wrong with giving your subject a brief range of topics that you'll be covering, but you don't want to go too in-depth. Save that for the spontaneity of the actual interview and save those gem answers for that interview. Also, you don't want to give the subject a chance to explain questions away or censor the questions before they've even been asked, if that makes sense. Remember, you want to have a fresh conversation with lots of room for detail, candid responses, and off-the-cuff answers. Having a sort of pre-interview risks watering down those responses or taking away the beauty of a spontaneous answer. Number five, have a list of topics, but not a list of questions. You want to do your due diligence and research for any, any interview. Preparation, of course, is paramount. But you don't really want to sit there with a list of questions on your lap, right, or in front of you, in which to conduct your interview by. Otherwise, it quickly becomes clear to your subject that you're just reading the questions from a prepared sheet. You know, or maybe you yourself are uncomfortable giving an interview. This can make the subject either nervous or bored if they sense that you're not up for an actual conversation. You want to make your interviewee feel comfortable, unless you're having a Michael Moore sort of moment. And to do that, it's important to at least give the impression that you're interested in having a conversation that allows for both parties to have their say. What I like to do in order to get around the old pages with a list of questions is to instead put together a one sheet with a list of topics that you'd like to cover. In this way, you're forced to pay more attention to your subject than your sheet of questions. And you're more likely to encourage and engage in eye contact. And you're more likely to come up with questions in a much more natural state. In an interview setting, answers beget questions, right? So when you're more engaged with the actual conversation, you're far more likely to come up with a list of questioning that's not only nat more natural, but it also enables you the opportunity to probe for more in-depth and thoughtful answers. It's in these types of moments that really, really nice moments can occur. Number six, hand signals for your crew. This next one doesn't really involve the actual, you know, conducting of the interview itself. It instead involves the mechanics of the crew working within that interview setting, right? As you already know, there's a, there are a zillion ways in which a delicate conversation can be interrupted by a moment or situation that could often have been avoided if some hand signals with the crew had been gone over prior to the interview. The most obvious advantage of hand signals is often between the director and the DP, or DOP as I've recently learned in Europe. Maybe the boom mic has fallen into frame, or you want the DP to reframe their shot. A couple of quick and easy hand signals can quickly avoid having to actually stop an interview while it's taking place. Something else that I'll add, one of the key crew members that you should always that should always be looped into these hand signals conversation 
is your sound person. I say this because your sound person is hearing both the entirety of the content as well as the quality of the sound. A good sound person, especially one who's keen on documentary films, can oftentimes help the director know when a sound bite was clipped by some other sound without interrupting the flow of the conversation. They can quickly and quietly signal the director that sound was, in fact, an issue during a given moment, and then the director can decide whether or not to repeat the question. This may come as a surprise, as a surprise, but if the sound person is a keen one, he or she might also be able to signal if they've caught one of those moments where the subject didn't include the question in their answer. Of course, tread lightly with this one, as you wouldn't want to give the sound person too much power. They are, after all, um, you know, just sound people. <laughs> A little director joke at sounds expense there. But seriously, work out a few quick and easy hand signals before your interview. And remember, if it's good enough for baseball, it's good enough for you. Number seven, be friendly, but not their friend. It's, of course, almost always important to make your subject feel comfortable with their setting in order to get the best results from that interview. But you don't want to make them too comfortable by being their best friend before the interview, especially, I guess, before the interview even starts. I find that it's important to maintain the interview and interviewee relationship as much as possible. Being nice and friendly and polite, but not overly so. One reason that I say this is that you don't want to give your subject a reason to feel that they can easily not answer a question should they be made uncomfortable by one. Of course, it's entirely up to the person whether or not she wants to answer, he or she wants to answer a particular question, but you can at least not make it easy for them to do so. Another reason for not being the subject's best friend is that it often can come across on camera that the relationship has been compromised somehow, and that the questions and answers can end up a bit softball in nature. An audience will read this, and like I said, it just compromises the interview, and perhaps maybe even the film, or at least a bit of it. Lastly, if a subject senses that they can run the interview to their advantage, say a politician, a lawyer, or a salesperson, you're in trouble. You'll be getting the worst kind of unusable answers possible. Again, you must, within reason of course, keep control of the interview as much as possible. Make sure it breathes, right? But also make sure that you don't become someone else's voice for their views or product. Number eight, make sure the critical questions get answered. There's nothing worse than looking through your footage long after the interview has happened, only to realize that you've not got any sound bites that are important to the very message of your film. This is a pretty simple solution, of course. Make sure that you've asked the questions that are at the heart of your film. Write down a few of them on your topic sheet so that you can make sure you don't miss those questions. Now, sometimes you'll find that you've gotten through the entire interview only to see that one of your critical questions didn't get asked. This is the moment where it's so easy, right? It's so easy to say, oh, well, I don't want to bother my subject with another question. I've already taken an hour of their time. When you have this thought, remember this. All of the time and money that was spent putting today's shoot together. The crew, the lunches, the research, the time spent coming up with questions and topics, etc., etc. And then on top of that, imagine yourself sitting down, editing the film, and having the thought, Oh, if only I'd asked that one question. It'd be perfect for this section. When you have these thoughts, I can promise you, you won't think twice about politely saying to your subject, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm realizing that I did have one more question that I wanted to make sure that I covered before going today. 
Also, don't be shy to restate a question towards the end of an interview or even right after you've asked the question if you don't feel like you get enough of an answer or, or we're hoping for a better delivery on it. You'll be happy you did this when you go to cut the film. Number nine is asking for any additional comments making sure to give your subject an opportunity to ask a question themselves or to add anything additional to the conversation. I think that you'll find that oftentimes the subject has something that they've wanted to say on camera that they've not yet maybe had the chance to do. It can be a nice opportunity for your subject to revoice their opinion on something already covered or perhaps bring up something entirely new and fresh, a thought or idea that perhaps you hadn't even thought of. It also gives the subject the feeling that they're free to say how they feel on a given subject or topic. In fact, after maybe a particularly controversial or touchy topic, you might even ask your interviewee if there's anything else that they wanted to add on that subject. Again, you're increasing your subject's comfort level and having a conversation with you, right? Which can only lead to better sound bites for you to use later on. Last but not least, number 10, keep rolling the camera after the interview is over. Some of my favorite moments in an interview actually happen after the interview is over. That is to say, I'd asked all the questions that I had, covered all of my sheet topics, and then afterwards, I ended up with sometimes another half hour of footage. In fact, I've had one or two interviews where the subject, for whatever reason, they were camera shy, they were concerned about being politically correct, whatever, but the last question had been asked, and the interview was basically over. And suddenly... And you can see this happen, right, on camera or before you. Suddenly they relax and they start telling you some story that's related to the very subject matter you've been struggling to get them to open up about the entire interview, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that you intentionally trick someone or tell them that the camera is no longer rolling, you know, so that they give you the whistleblower (laughs) scoop that you've been, been seeking all along. If you do this, you're opening yourself up to a lawsuit. And really, you're just kind of being a slimy, maybe even morally bankrupt human being. What I'm talking about is is kind of combining a couple of the items that we've already talked about today, like allowing some breathing room, and and giving a signal to the crew that you're still rolling. Actually, this last one shouldn't really even be necessary since, since all crew members should always assume that you're rolling until the director's called cut, right? You might politely smile and say something, something like, well, well, that wasn't so bad, right? You know, as you finish up and wrap up the interview, you might politely smile and say something like, well, that wasn't so bad, right? Just give it a moment. And sometimes you'll get lucky and the person will feel relaxed because now the pressure's off, right? Cameras aren't rolling or the quote unquote interview is over. And and then they might just start talking and they might just give you a really nice anecdote that you can use, or they might just say something that makes up for what had looked like a pretty damn lackluster interview. Remember, keep the camera rolling. Don't call cut once the last question's been answered. Keep the camera rolling because you never know what you'll get. Believe me, I've been burned enough times when I didn't keep rolling and suddenly the subject has said exactly the entire freaking thesis of the film, which I'd been unable to get the whole previous hour we'd been rolling. And that's a very painful moment indeed. Well, that's today's episode of The Documentary Life. I hope that you'll take these tips out into the world and it helps your interview techniques. They're just a few suggestions that I had, but I'm sure that you all have some really useful tips that you could share with the Doc Lifer community. I think that we'd all benefit from hearing them. So please, if you've got a hot tip or two about conducting interviews, 
drop me an email so that I may pass on to the other doc lifers. You can either go to the website at www.thedocumentarylife.com and leave a note there, or you can drop me an email at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. Remember, it's this kind of engagement that will continue to nurture this idea of a documentary community that I think we're all trying to foster. So please don't be shy. A quick reminder that in two weeks' time, I'm going to be having doc filmmakers Dea Schlossberg and Lindsey Grazel on the show to discuss their arrests back in October during the North Dakota Access Pipeline Affair. It's going to be a grand opportunity for all of us doc lifers to get a better understanding of how the freedom of the press laws are being affected in the U.S. and how worldwide we might best arm ourselves as journalists for when things can get a bit tricky or worse, you might find yourself imprisoned for filming an event. So make sure to come back in two weeks and listen to episode number 26 of The Documentary Life. Thanks everyone for continuing to support this ever-growing documentary community of ours, and thanks again for listening to The Documentary Life. Until next time, I remain your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. See you soon. Don't forget, if you're interested in a guide to help you navigate the fundamental aspects of doc filmmaking, the things that every doc filmmaker should know, then get our free doc filmmaking course, The Documentary Filmmaker's Essential Checklist, by going to thedocumentarylife.com courses. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.